0: Welcome to the final evening of this class, Can We Trust the Gospels? Fittingly, tonight I would like to talk about the Last Supper. I would also like to spend a significant amount of time on Jesus' uh, time in the Garden of Gethsemane and his betrayal there and some of the subsequent events. And then I'll talk a little bit about... Peter's denials. So, the theme of the night is sort of uh, Jesus' final times with his disciples and their betrayals of Jesus. And then, if you're interested to know what happens after that, we will be taking up Jesus' death, resurrection, and the ensuing events in the Acts of the Apostles next semester. So, that'll be a lot of fun. All right. So, the Last Supper. I have organized things sort of by, on your handout, by, like, kinds of evidence. We have a couple different kinds of indirect evidence for uh, the historicity of this passage, or of these passages, I should say, because the Last Supper account is given in all four Gospels. So, for one, it's... Independently plausible that Jesus' last meal was a Passover meal. We know that he died in Jerusalem, and the most likely time for Jesus to be in Jerusalem would be at the time of a major Jewish, fest- Jewish festival. I mean, he was going around to lots of places, but to, when uh, Passover would be happening, that would be a very likely time for him to be going to Jerusalem. And the details of the meal, as it's recounted, fit Passover tradition. This is the point that Craig Keener makes. So, nice independent uh, or indirect evidence right there. And another part, like a detail in the meal, the beloved disciple, that's John, is described as leaning back against Jesus. Well, in dining rooms of middle and upper class homes, people who gathered for a meal didn't sit up at the table, but they, in fact, laid on couches called triclinium, propped up on elbows. So this is a nice little kind of throwaway detail, seemingly, but one that if you know about like the way people in these kinds of homes would recline at meal, makes perfect sense. A little indirect evidence for the historicity of that passage. Uh this is that's part specifically in John's Gospel. I don't think the other I don't think the synoptics mention that uh, detail at all. All right. Uh so then this will be kind of a theme of the night these passages that we're going that we're thinking about this evening have a lot of embarrassing moments for the, for the apostles and for Jesus, I guess by extension, uh, there are a lot of t- points where the apostles are, or various of them, or all of them do, together, are portrayed in a bad light. Uh, and this doesn't reflect well on them. You wouldn't think that early Christians would want to be uh, portraying the sort of founders of their faith in this way, yeah. or that they would want to portray Jesus as someone who had this inner circle of friends who then turn around and acted in these ways. So here's one. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, it's especially evident that Judas participates in the Eucharistic ceremony. Well, Judas is subsequently going to betray Jesus. And if you were going to invent a story about Jesus, uh, you know, instituting the Eucharist and then going and getting betrayed afterwards. You probably wouldn't want to involve the very guy who was going to betray him in this, you know, beautiful story about the institution of it. You'd want to leave him out. It's a kind of smudge on the story that's being told. Um, one th- part I actually didn't include in there because I didn't want to discuss it detail was, and also in, I think it's also John's gospel, you get the discussion that the uh, disciples are having about who amongst them is the greatest. It's something that occurs right in the context of the Last Supper, and it's just another point where it seems like right in this final hour where, you, you know, if you were going to make up a story about the years that the, the apostles had spent studying under Jesus and following him and uh, then, okay, now he's got this, uh, he's, he's doing the Last Supper, he's instituting the Eucharist and now it's going to end. You probably wouldn't put in this plethora of embarrassing moments at the end that really clearly show uh, the, the spiritual or moral ineptitude of the Apostles at this kind of climactic moment. Nice. Yeah, So so given that we know uh like there's multiple attested or there's, there's a multi, multiple attestations to the fact that Judas leaves and comes back to bring people to uh to arrest Jesus you can imagine the temptation there would be to just write him out of the supper part like well he left anyways and he's he was a betrayer let's just write him out of the story as much as as you possibly can at that point but so yeah clearly in that case the fact that they leave him in the supper seems like, well, that's a good reason to think that it actually happened. Alright, so, we have some cases of multiple attestation regarding the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus' teaching about servanthood at the Last Supper appears in both Luke and in John. And interestingly, Jesus' institution of the Eucharist and his betrayal on the same night are independently attested both in, well, in all of the Gospels and and by Paul in 1 Corinthians. So he seems to be drawing on an earlier tradition. Uh, Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians. This is chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. He says... For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. That's the indication that this is coming from a tradition, the idea of passing it on. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sure. Ah, betrayal great. The, the betrayal, but not the Eucharist is in John. Cool. So there's a multiple attestation there, not between all four Gospels and Corinthians, but between the synoptic Gospels. Yeah, so this is, yeah, so something that, it's one of the earliest epistles that we have, like, and we're very certain about that, and Paul is saying... This is something that's been passed on to me, this story about, or this knowledge about Christ's betrayal and the Eucharistic Supper. Justin makes a point right now, since we're about to talk about undesigned coincidences and already have been, we should all just read Lydia M- book. It's hidden in, hidden, in plain hidden in plain view. All right. So there are a couple cool undesigned coincidences here in the Lord's or in the Last Supper. For one, there's an undesigned coincidence between Matthew twenty-six and John twenty-one. So Peter's boast of greater loyalty than the other disciples explains why Jesus asks Peter in John twenty-one if Peter loves him more than the other disciples love him, Jesus is, in that case, alluding to Peter's earlier boast at the Last Supper. Uh, But neither gospel records both Peter's boast at the Last Supper and the later scene where Jesus is sort of interrogating him. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So that's a pretty cool... Like actually, extremely explanatory and coincidence because the kind of the sort of interrogation scene in John twenty one doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense unless you understand the earlier context. Oh, okay. And then there's another uh, undesigned coincidence between Mark chapter fourteen. Well, really, it's. Uh, There are a number of details in the synoptics that hint that Jesus has been in Jerusalem prior to this trip for Passover. But they're just hints. Um, So in particular, Blomberg uh, cites connections Jesus seems to have in Jerusalem. Uh, Like connections that enable him to make arrangements for the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11. And for the Passover in Mark chapter 14, if he'd never been to Jerusalem before, this would have been a more awkward kind of situation. Just telling people, hey, go get a donkey or hey, go arrange a room. Uh, His friendship with Mary and Martha, with whom he stayed in Bethany in Luke 10 or Matthew 21. um, His lament over over Jerusalem seems to imply that he's been acquainted with the city in Matthew 23. So all these seem to imply that he's been there before, but only the Gospel of John actually mentions these other trips. So there's this undesigned coincidence between all of these hints in the other Gospels and then John confirming all those things to be true in a way that you would not expect where the story is made up. Alright. Any questions before I go into the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, I'm not going there. But, <laughs> uh, in our imagination, we can go there with Jesus. This is a really fun group of passages for which there is just a treasure trove of interesting, uh, interesting information. So, all right. Um, okay, so... Let's start off with the independent evidence, independent confirmation from external sources, as it were. Um, Indirect confirmation, thank you. Uh, So, well, passing over the brook of Kidron to enter the Garden of Gethsemane fits the local geography. Nice little tidbit. You might not know that if you weren't somebody who'd been around the area. Say somebody who was living several hundred years later, or some, and not from there. So something that uh, Craig Keener points out is that the disciples often, or disciples in general, often greeted rabbis with a kiss as a sign of intimacy and respect. So something that makes Judas's particular way of betraying Jesus ring true as something he might choose also makes it sting even more. In a way, like, it makes it, uh, yeah, the fact that his betrayal comes with a sign that a disciple would give to his teacher gives it a deeper irony in a way that seems tragic. Here's another thing that uh, is independently plausible about the account. So, you all remember the part where Peter starts whipping out his sword and just going off attacking uh, cuts out somebody, somebody's ear. So Peter's attack is plausible. In part, we'll talk about it in a second because of Peter, but in part <laughs> because of the contemporaneous Jewish belief in a military Messiah. So the Messiah everyone had been looking forward to for uh, centuries at this point was a military leader. And so, you know, even though Jesus had been plausibly trying to disabuse his disciples of this notion for the last few years. It still seems like Peter probably hadn't quite gotten the memo or at least that it hadn't really deeply ingrained itself in him. And uh, this helps explain or make sense of his uh, quickness for taking up arms in that moment. Yeah. So I guess I can just jump to – uh, I've got a bunch of grouped um, points about about coherence, but uh, one of them is that throughout the Gospels, Peter is constantly portrayed as boldly and even foolishly impulsive. Yeah. It's Peter, so here's some examples, it's Peter who walks, who attempts to walk on the water to meet Jesus and ends up floundering. He's the one who speaks up in the midst of terror and awe at the transfiguration. Like, oh, look, let's make some boots for you. Uh, So he even rebukes Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, only to be told, get behind me, Satan. Um, He's the one who swears his loyalty to Jesus, even to death, only to deny him three times later in the evening something we'll we'll look at in in a little bit so he's he's uh he's a little bit like an early luke skywalker if you you know if you're into the into star wars he's just like the kid who wanted to go on faraway adventures and once he got that lightsaber and he had a cause he just wanted to to go for it he wanted to go fighting so, yeah, it's not just Peter's impulsiveness that helps explain the the this and other actions, but it's his particular stubbornness that also that we see that uh, kind of exemplified on multiple occasions where he's a little bit set in his ways. Yeah. I mean, you might wonder if his name is a little bit ironic <laughs> in itself, the idea of a rock being a kind of rigid unflinching yeah sort of, <laughs> sort of their virtues and vices kind of wrapped up in that uh, some different connotations all right uh so one other bit of indirect confirmation um so there's this interesting passage in mark uh after jesus is going away with them, he's being arrested, and a young it says a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> well, it turns out this detail is very plausible given what we know about ancient apparel. So this person, Balcom, quotes Howard Jackson as follows, Ancient cloaks and mantles of the sort our youths send in is likely to have been, were merely simple sleeveless rectangles of cloth. And they were regularly wrapped or draped around the body without any belts or fasteners of any kind to hold them on. Even in the best of circumstances, consequently, they were likely to slip off with the normal movements of the body. With any sudden violent action, particularly involving the arms or legs, the garment was practically assured of being thrown off. So, it might seem like a very odd aside in the context of the story, or something that seemed un- unlikely, but when you know some, a little bit about ancient garments, turns out to be perfectly likely. It's it is an <laughs> odd aside, but uh, one, like- one that adds to the likeness of the story. As it turns out, he is, he's, he's, he's oh. like a cameo in his own. Dog. Oh, oh man! I'd never heard that before. Yeah, that's actually Okay. One of the traditional theories so just so w- apparently, one of the traditional theories is that the young man wearing only a linen cloth is Mark. So this would help explain a few things. It would help explain why the young man was following Jesus. Yeah. It would explain how Mark has knowledge of the young man following Jesus. Uh, and, why. and it would explain why Mark didn't uh, include the young man's name. Uh-huh. Because he was wanting to protect his own identity. All right. So, uh, same guy who kind of... Balcom, who gives us this information about the ancient garments, argues that a number of anonymous individuals in the gospel, uh, including the people who provide Jesus with a cult for the triumphal entry, the uh, woman who anoints Jesus, uh, the man who cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, the man who runs away naked, are, well, these are all people left anonymous, Balcom argues they're left anonymous for the sake of their own protection. Why? Well, these are all people who did things that could be regarded as implicating them in sedition. Like they did things that people could have interpreted as being seditious acts. John, writing his gospel at a much later date, is able to name them because, well, by that point, you know, not so worried about people being Uh, prosecuted for helping out Jesus, what, like a hundred years after the fact. Um, Though he's not even writing about some of them. So his hypothesis implies that real people were doing the things the Gospels report. And Mark was writing at a time when eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry were moving around in in Mark's community. Uh, So this is what we call an uh, unexplained illusion, right? You, and in particular, you're just wondering, like, well, why is he talking about this young man, and why doesn't he give his name, and why in the heck would you include the part about the young man? Why? <laughs> uh, yeah, as as Austin put it, it's still an odd aside, even when you know that it's not an unlikely event in the sense that you know his his garment wasn't an unlikely thing. It's still a weird aside. But, well, when you're writing history and you were like, well, I was there. I saw that thing happen. Might as well include it for, you know, or for some reason it seems like it might be an interesting or important bit of info. There's just a a different vantage point for writing history from which things seem like they can be important for a narrative where for fiction, they clearly won't be. All right. So now we get to the embarrassing stuff. The really embarrassing stuff. Uh, well, so here's, here are some things that, like I was saying earlier, if you were making this up from whole cloth or even just fabricating some of it, you really would not want to include some of these details. You'd want to have a Jesus who seemed competent, who had groomed his inner circle to be a group of people who were competent, who would stick by him, who seemed honorable, especially in an honor-shame culture. Well, in Gethsemane, Jesus comes off as weak and afraid. He's uh, got this mission to do, but he's like um, to the point of almost begging not to do it. He's afraid. He's, uh, yeah, it it doesn't seem like a picture of strength and uh, like the sort of military uh, messiah that people were perhaps looking for and apparently can easily be contrasted with other excellent accounts of Jewish martyrs. So it's a really realistic touch that early Christians you wouldn't think would make up. Uh, Similarly, the disciples that Jesus is with, against his own instructions, repeatedly fall asleep. (laughs) Uh, Clearly not something you would want to make up, They look like a bunch of doofuses. I mean, (laughs) it just looks really bad. Um, Yeah, so this is embarrassing. Another point that Keener points out, uh, the idea that Jesus was betrayed by a member of his inner circle would clearly be embarrassing, uh, especially in an honor-shame culture. You've got this tight-knit group, and the idea that part of that group would be the one who betrayed you would just be a very shameful uh, fact, so clearly not something that was invented, and then not only are the disciples falling asleep on Jesus, but then uh when stuff hits the fan, what happens? they scatter well that 's not great <laughs> that's really embarrassing, like. What's you know this is these are supposed to be the uh the core it's the core twelve like these are supposed to be the closest knit <laughs> uh one of them's betraying him and the other eleven are running every which way so this is just incredibly embarrassing all right, so there's a lot of embarrassing stuff here i mean like it it keeps going so much that I've got a whole section devoted to. Talking about Judas' death and Peter's denial, which is more just embarrassing information. Uh, so, moving along, we have a case of multiple attestation, particularly with respect to Jesus' distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, it's attested in the Synoptics and independently in John. So in John 12:27 he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Interestingly, Hebrews 5, 7 looks like it could also be an allusion to this prayer in Gethsemane. So this in Hebrews 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now we get to the fun, coherent stuff. We've already talked about uh, Peter. The idea that Peter is portrayed in the garden in a way that's consistent with how he's portrayed in all the other Gospels. So, uh, Well, Jesus' reaction to Peter is to prevent him from fighting with the guards, right? Uh, This is detailed in John 18, at least. Well, this is really consistent with Jesus' attitudes about violence more generally. So expressed in like uh, the perish by the sword remark in Matthew 26, the turn the other cheek remarks in Matthew 5 and Luke 6, and in his uh, idea that you ought to love your enemies in Matthew 5 and in Luke 6 it seems like generally this is the kind of attitude that Jesus has. It seems probable that it's part of his attempt to disabuse people of the military Messiah idea. And it's consistent here with his actions. All right. Uh, this is going back a little bit from where we were just talking about. But when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he calls the inner circle the three uh peter james and john to come pray with him while the other disciples are laying back taking (laughs) taking naps (laughs) um so this is another point of coherence it's something we see throughout the gospels that there is this inner circle this trio of closest friends that jesus has um they're the only three that he permits to witness the transfiguration. They're the only ones that are allowed to come inside the house when Jesus heals the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. And other points where we see like kind of close conversations between the four of them. Uh, so yeah, it's another point of coherence right there. So last one on coherence. In Mark's version of... Jesus' prayer in the garden, uh, Jesus uses the term Abba, the Aramaic word for father, to address God. And this bit of Aramaic in, preserved in the Greek text is an indicator of authenticity because we know that Jesus, his personal prayers, like his heart language, would have been Aramaic. He, we have good reason to think he would have spoken Greek, but that it wouldn't have been the language that he would have been praying in. But his use of this term for God, well, I shouldn't say but, that implies some contrast, but also uh, his use of this term for God, unusual in this time and place, is attested repeatedly in material contained both in Matthew and Luke, also in material that's unique to Matthew, and in material that's unique to Luke. So we have a number of different occasions on which he seems to use this particular word to refer to God. All right. Now we get to some fun stuff, a couple of interesting undesigned coincidences, and then we'll talk about the death of Judas, which is an interesting case of a discrepancy or apparent discrepancy. All right. So, Matthew 26, there's a cool undesigned coincidence with John 18. So, in Matthew 26, there's the use in Jesus' prayer of cup imagery. Uh, does somebody want to look that up real quick? Matthew 26, verses 39, and then in 42 as well. Great. So then, in John 18, 11, when... Peter is going off and chopping the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus stops him, and he asks, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, in John, we don't get the, the cup of prayer, or the cup imagery in the prayer of Jesus. And so the remark in John might seem a little bit like an odd image or an odd detail but given the the knowledge that we have of the particular verbiage of jesus's prayer in the garden you know what matthew gives us explains perfectly jesus's question to peter as it's recorded in the gospel of John. So there's this beautiful undesigned coincidence right there jesus is talking to his father saying god This is a bitter cup to drink, and he's just focusing. He has an image in his mind. He's thinking about it. He's praying about it. He's just working it over, and then Peter is going and trying to fight his way out of it, and Jesus has made his peace with it and says, Look, Peter, shall I not drink this cup? So there's also an undesigned coincidence between John 18 and Luke 22. Uh, so in Luke 22 51 we get the detail that Jesus heals the servant Malchus's ear well this helps to explain how in John 1836 Jesus attests to Pilate that his movement uh, the sort of religious political movement that he is uh, been sort of creating with his disciples and all the, all his followers is not a violent political uprising for, you know, if he had literally just come from a situation where one of his followers had chopped off somebody's ear in the process of his getting arrested, that would not lend a lot of credibility to his claim. Right. But given that he heals Malchus and comes willingly This definitely lends credibility to the claim. And Pilate, closely after, says, I find no capital crime in him. So there's a nice little undesigned coincidence there. All right. Well, let's talk about the death of Judas. So this is something that a lot of people have thought was a clear discrepancy in the Gospels. So... uh, In two ways. So, Matthew's account of Judas' suicide says the following. It says that Judas died by hanging himself. Well, Luke's account in the book of Acts says that he fell headlong and burst open. That seems to be Luke's description of how Judas died. Second, uh, both accounts say that the 30 pieces of silver, the pieces of silver Judas was given to betray Jesus, were subsequently used to buy a field. But they seem to disagree about who were, who were the people who bought the field with those pieces of silver. In Matthew, here's what we we find, that Judas disgusted with himself, threw the silver back at the chief priests, and that they went and subsequently bought the field because, well, the blood money couldn't be legally put in the coffers of the church. So, oh, we can't put it, it's, it's not legal to put it in the coffers, what are we going to do with it? Well, let's just go buy something with it. But in Acts, in Luke's account, we're told that Judas himself, uh, one translation is obtained a field with the reward for his wickedness. I think on your handout, I put my own translation: acquired a field from the reward of unrighteousness. All right, so that doesn't seem great. All right, seems like some discrepancies right there. Like I've been saying in all the other classes, what gives? What are we? What are we to make of that? Uh, are there any thoughts offhand? Great. So it's. I think it's important to note that. X doesn't say that he he killed himself uh, by doing that, or that he died by falling. It just says he fell or he fell headlong and he burst open, dying by hanging and falling headlong and bursting open. Well, the, the, to say that somebody did both of those things, or that both of those things happened to them, because uh, it's not necessarily things you do. It's not, uh, there's no inherent contradiction there. That's a good first observation and one that will serve the harmonization that I'll suggest in a second. So what about the seeming contradiction or discrepancy where it seems like one gospel says the chief priest bought the field. One of, and the Acts says that uh, Judas purchased the field. Yeah, so here's something maybe you could say that's similar to that, and this wasn't part of what I put in my notes, but I, I feel like it's suggested by what you're saying, or maybe it's what you were trying to get at. Uh, you could say, like, for for all of Judas' efforts, here's what ended up being purchased. A field. He, you know, he he betrayed Jesus, he was given the silver, the silver ended up buying a field, so in a very... Metaphorical or almost even allegorical sense, Judas acquired the field. Yeah, that might be something you could say. Uh, so here's here's the harmonization that I'll offer. That was in Justin's notes. <laughs> no, so, yeah, it's not it's not invented by us. It's it's a commonly thought uh, way of reconciling these points. So you've got Judas. Maybe he was a deeply ambivalent person all along, prone to some kind of deep avarice, but a true believer nonetheless. Maybe he was just a schmuck, and then he came to understand the depths of his depravity after he did this final, truly depraved act, betraying his rabbi with a kiss. Regardless, he becomes overcome with his grief, right? He throws the silver coins on the sanctuary floor like Matthew accounts, and then he runs off and he hangs himself. Well, where might be a good spot to hang himself? Well, some people have noticed that there are fields in Palestine where olive trees grow, and they grow from the tops of cliffs. Well, this might be a good spot, a tree branch going right off the top of a cliff, Got, you know, a nice long drop below you, so you're not going to hit the ground. That is, unless the rope breaks. So, some people have hypothesized that Judas might hang himself from one of these trees. Well, then the body's just going to sit there for a while, right? And eventually, probably fall. Either because it rots through the rope, or the rope breaks, or something like that. Well, then you've got a rotted body. Sorry for the grotesqueness of this. Uh, My parents are biologists, so I just don't even care. We (laughs) talked about all sorts of stuff growing up during dinner conversation. Anyways, so you've got this rotten body falling from a cliff down to the ground. It falls headlong, and its intestines just splat out all over the place, right? That makes sense of the claim in Acts that he falls headlong into a field and his intestines spill out. Which, on the face of it, is a pretty weird uh, kind of event, right? Like, normally people don't just walk around, fall over, and then their intestines just spill out everywhere. (laughs) That's not a usual consequence of falling headlong, that your intestines come out. Uh, But, as Ian was pointing out earlier, the hanging... The falling and and the falling and the intestines coming out are none of them actually contradictory events. And this story is a way of understanding how they could not all happen together, but in a way that actually the hanging explains the falling, which explains the intestines coming out. So there's that virtue to it that you can now understand why he. Why his intestines spilled out after his head after his falling headlong, and why he was falling headlong was because of the hanging. Uh, well, then the chief priests—they can't put Judas's blood money in the treasury for the reasons we talked about. It's blood money that's illegal to put in the treasury, so they use it to buy the very field where Judas hanged himself. And then we, you might think, given the conventions of the time. It would be an appropriate thing to say, maybe metaphorical in some way, but appropriate to say that Judas bought the field if the priest did this since they bought it on his behalf. Uh, yeah, other thoughts about that story? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. so I was trying to press the idea that actually the falling headlong and in intestine spilling out is a weird kind of suggestion of an event by itself but that when you have this uh when you have this account the hanging actually explains the falling which explains the intestine spilling out and that seems like an undesigned coincidence if you think actually yes this is a really plausible uh, harmonization and it does seem to depend on how plausible you find the harmonization You know, there's also... This gets back to something we were just saying a little bit ago. There's there's a really metaphorical way to read Luke's claim that Judas Judas acquired a field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is to say, like, the result of all his actions and his betrayal was to end up dead in a field. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, And... What it literally says is that he acquired a field from the reward of unrighteousness. It might seem like he bought a field with this money that he was given for the betrayal, but there's also a really metaphorical way of reading that, which is like the reward of his unrighteousness was to end up dead and disgraced in a field somewhere. We can, we can do the Greek on that if you want. I, th- I really think that yeah, it's actually will, a consistent way of reading that. Alright, well let's talk really quickly about Peter's denials. Uh, and we'll finish up. So, just one more in a stream of embarrassing details about Jesus' uh, disciples and their lack of performance when the Uh, Acts at the grindstone. So, yeah, if you were to invite or invent a story about the founding fathers of your church, the rock on which your church was going to be built, would you invent a story about him betraying or not betraying, but denying really yeah, betraying uh, in spirit Jesus three times? I don't think you would. Also, uh Peter's denials are attested in all the synoptics yes. and in John. So, yeah, so you, so if you're if you want to record the fact that Peter survived the night, but you don't want to make him look bad, you write in some details about how maybe Jesus himself tells Peter, yeah. "Get out of here so they don't kill you," and then Jesus, and then Peter's just doing what Jesus says. Right. But notably, the, notably, this would be a point of, like, incoherence or lack of coherence, given some of the things we've talked about already tonight. Like, if Peter just does what Jesus says and runs away, that doesn't seem like the, the Peter that we know. The, yeah, so this seems all the more realistic. All right, so this is a very realistic part, uh, in part because it's so embarrassing. However, there is this potential discrepancy that some people like to point out. So uh, Mark 14, well really Mark indicates that Peter's denial occurs twice, excuse me, occurs before the cock crows twice. While all the other gospel accounts only mention the cock crowing. So some people will say, "Oh, they only mentioned the cock crowing once." Actually, all they'd say is, "Before the cock crows." So you, So the worry is supposed to be, "Oh, Mark seems to think the cock crowed twice. The other ones seem to think it crowed once. One is not two. <laughs> what gives? Uh, <laughs> so well, here's a simple harmonization. Mark is just being precise about the number of times the cock crowed. Uh, He seems to include some extraneous details. Other people don't, like the young man in the garden. Uh, He thought it was interesting or noteworthy for some reason that the cock crowed two times. Other evangelists were not so interested in how many times that it crowed, so much as in the mere fact of its crowing. Where a cock's crowing could be it's making one crow or two crow or three crows or four crows. But, you know, a cock crowing, cock-a-doodle-doo, doo diddle doo doodle-doo, whatever. That counts as a crowing, right? Uh, rather than it's not crowing. And I think this is pretty plausible given that Mark talks about the cock crowing. Twice and everyone else just talks about its crowing not its crowing once or anything like that um, so even if the other evangelist texts misleadingly suggest that it did only crow once if you if you're if you think oh but they still it still seems like they they think it only crowed one time it's not clear this is a problem so uh, careful examination of ordinary discourse shows that we often streamline anecdotes by making claims that are approximate truths in order to edit out unnecessary details. So like how important is it to the fact of Peter's betrayal that the crock crowed one time or two times from the perspective of the writer of Matthew or Luke or John is the idea. Yeah. Uh, the difference between Mark and the other Gospels looks like just an instance of that kind of giving an approximate detail where you're not actually trying to say the exact number of times or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was trying to think if the passage in John could be translated something like uh, the rooster will not have crowed until you deny me three times. And I just can't tell if the verb is in the right tense. It's phonase, and uh, it would need to be like a future, future imperfect or yeah. But weirdly, it looks like second person future. Oh, yeah. Here, here is another point though too. Um, the verb our naysay is you will deny me so it's is what he's really saying is the rooster will not crow until that you will deny me three times so like until the point where you're going to deny me three times is one way you can understand what's being said so if you translate it until you have denied me three times then it sounds like oh there's a discrepancy there because it makes us think you have to have finished the third denial before the cock crows but if you translate it with the future tense of Arnese which is the tense that the greek actually has until you will deny me three that you will deny me three times is the who Arnese then it seems to permit this idea the rooster's not going to crow until the point where you deny me three times that event the Triple denial right. event, yeah. It's yeah. not gonna, it's not gonna crow until this event, yeah. and they can be simultaneous. There we go, greeked okay. it. <laughs> <all> weird, <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, still think I buy the uh, harmonization idea of if you, if you're just talking about the cock crowing, you may just, but. I do think that if that's the if that's the closest we can find to an explicit discrepancy then I think actually the only reason it appears to be explicit is because people take this this happens a lot with translation from Greek to English the most rigorously uh static English translation of the Greek would sound like very bad English so we get it to a slightly better sounding English which is actually what made that sound like a clear discrepancy in that case. If we made it sound exactly like the Greek with the future tense and the until that you will betray me, then uh, it wouldn't have sounded like a discrepancy. It would have just sounded like also, also. messed up English. So, the most plausible way to read that is to say, or is to read it as saying, the event of the cock growing is not going to happen until the event of your denying me three times. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying anything about how how they overlap or anything like that. Well, we are like fifteen minutes over time, so I'm gonna call it but this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, man.